the gospel. It's bigger and it's better, and I'd like to add better than you thought it was. Amen? Growing up, I started trying to learn about the gospel. And more and more I found that the church tradition I had grown up in had begun to tie all kinds of things to it that really were not the gospel. And so I don't know if any of you have had this experience, but I began to try to, to, to unclutter the gospel and reduce it down to its most uh, essence, if you will. And I did that for years, and the more I did that, pretty soon I began to be very unsettled with what I was doing. You see, I began to shape the gospel as I wanted it to be. I began to reduce it down more and more and more and more until really it was losing its effect on me, its power in my life, and an understanding that brought clarity and direction and purpose for my life. And so what we're planning on doing in this next uh, month is proclaim the gospel and explain it in all of its facets. Because the gospel's like a diamond. If you only see one side of it, it's not that great. But when you shine the light on it and you see the brilliance of the light shining inward and outward and upward and in all different directions, that's what brings out the beauty. And so that's what we're trying to do here uh, in this month. And so I'm going to lay out for you what we're going to do and then lay out for you what I'm going to do today. So basically, we're going to go back before time because this is very important and this is a part of the backstory. It's not the gospel itself. But it's the backstory of the gospel that what I find is almost unheard of. In other words, people do not know about the backstory. And then we're going to talk about the, the, the backstory that's unseen and the backstory that's seen, the story of Israel, and how that ultimately the gospel is the fulfillment of all that story, culminating in Jesus Christ. Okay, And then I'm going to explain how that Jesus walks that out and makes it what it is, okay? Because it's been twisted, it's been turned, it's been misunderstood, and we want to begin to build back this month a foundation in our church and every one of you guys. So again, don't let this uh, confuse you in the sense of when you hear me speak today, you may amen every point or you may not. I have no idea. I would assume most of you would agree with what I'm going to say. But the problem is, unless you begin to continue to search this out for yourself and study it so that you too can tell the story that I'm going to tell today, not only telling the story, but then being able to live it out in a purposeful way. So it's one thing to understand it. It's another thing to be able to proclaim it clearly and compellingly to other people. You're all called to do that. And it takes time and it takes effort of seeking into the story to understand it, to be able to do that. And then finally, and most importantly, understanding what it is to follow or to live in or to obey the gospel in a way that impacts your life and the people around you. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. And I'm going to start with the backstory. Just close your eyes for a moment. I'm going to ask you to imagine what I'm going to speak about for a moment. And the reason I'm asking you to do that is because the imagination is very interesting. God's created us with it. And it allows you to see things. And I want you to see what I'm going to describe because it's amazing. And what I'm about to share with you, I would again, I would say most of you have not heard this part of the story. So in other words, there's the Father, there's the Son, and there's the Holy Spirit. 
And they're sitting around, talking, communing with one another, just like you might do with your wife and kids or your family or your friends. Just sitting around, talking. Get that image in your head. The God of the universe, the God who created everything, is very mundane at times. He likes to sit around and talk. And he talked with himself. And so the father's talking to the son and the son to the father and the spirit is in the mix. And they're, and they're just beginning to think and they're beginning to create. And they begin to think, we want to create these creatures called human beings. And this is all revealed in different passages, but I'm going to put it all together for you in one shot. And the father says, let us create them in our image. But God knows, think about it, he knows that if he creates humanity, they're going to rebel. He knows it right out of the gate. He starts rolling around, they start talking about different options and different ways of how they might do this and how they might bring it together. What kind of story does God want to tell? And as he looks at humanity, as he thinks about the creation that he's about to create, he realizes they're not only going to rebel against him, they're going to begin to worship other gods, which is going to cause them to no longer reflect him. And then they're going to turn on one another. They're going to kill one another. They're going to oppress one another. They're going to lie and cheat to one another. And God knows all this. He sees all this. He sees every option available. And there are no good options. Think about if you're in the midst of that divine counsel. Something very interesting, and I'm not going to explain it in full, but if you go to the app and look in the sermon notes, I've kind of laid out what this divine counsel was all about and giving you some scriptures to look up. Uh, how they talked with one another and how amazingly they let the prophets from time to time listen in on the conversation. Do, do you get what's going on? Before time, God's having a conversation about creating humanity and the problems that are going to come with that. The pain that's going to come with that, not only to humanity, but ultimately to God himself. And he sees there's no way to give them a will where they're not going to exercise that will in rebellion to him and in oppression to one another. There just simply isn't a way. Now, how is God going to ultimately bring that all back around to where humanity's coming into him in this loving, perfect, unified, loving relationship? How's he going to do it? How would you do it? Think about that for a moment. Imagine that, that kind of scenario where you're going, before we do this, we better think about it. Because it's going to create a lot of pain, a lot of death, and a lot of destruction. Is it worth it? And can we ultimately redeem it? And not just redeem it back, but redeem it in a way that will sustain it for all eternity to where creation will never rebel again. That's the counsel God's having with himself. And that's before time. And he drops these little notes to the prophets throughout the scriptures, throughout hundreds of years, different places at different times, different prophets, and they hear from the Spirit these words. One of them is Psalms 110, where it says, my Lord said to my Lord. You get it? 
In other words, David is worshiping. And he's worshiping God for who he is and the promises that he's made to him through the covenant. And then he hears the Spirit say, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies placed at your feet, at your footstool. And he writes it down. And then he sits there and looks at it and thinks, What, what does this mean? What, what, what did I just hear? What, what's, what's this about? And it's not until Jesus comes that ultimately the revelation of that kind of a revelation gets to be made known. So you've got to understand how, how God is telling a story in such a masterful, wise way. He's before time laying it all out. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to do it. And this is how we're going to bring it all to completion. And then in time, he's going to give little hints, little words, little messages, and, and, and they're wrestling with them. They're hearing them, they're writing them down, and they're putting them together over a huge amount of time, about 1,500 years, until the appointed time, Jesus said, until my time when I would reveal the ultimate plan of God between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the gospel story is something that had been pre-planned had been thoroughly thought through as to how he would bring all of humanity back to himself, even though he knows what their inclinations are. Do you, do you get the magnitude of the backstory? The magnitude and the wisdom that it would take because he's not going to take your will away. How can God not take humanity's will away and yet cause all their wills to be unified with his will? It's never been done to this very day. That's not been accomplished. But the gospel speaks forth of how it's going to be accomplished and how it will ultimately be fulfilled. And we're going to talk about that. Then you have this backstory, right? So Jesus is saying, listen, they're going to start making these animal sacrifices to you, thinking it pleases you. In fact, some of them are going to go so far as to sacrifice their own children to you, God. They, they don't know you. They think that pleases you. And Jesus looks at the Father and says, I, I know that's not what pleases you. But if you'll give me a body, I'll go down and live among them. And I'll give you absolute devotion. My will, I will surrender to your will. Because, Father, I know that's what you're after. Not sacrifice, but obedience. This was revealed in the Old Testament and comes to light in the New Testament. And then the father looks at the son. This is before time again. And he's saying, you're telling me you're willing to humiliate yourself and become an actual physical man and then suffer and die and give your obedience back to me for their sake? If you're willing to do that, then I'll tell you what I'll do for you. I'll exalt your name. I'll exalt the name of Jesus above even the name of Yahweh. I will lift it up above all other names and all of humanity. The only way they can come into this new life is through that name of Jesus. I want to describe this because it's important for, I think, people to see the, the magnitude of this story and the almost naturalness of it. In other words, God having a conversation. That's who we worship. 
That's who created you. What do you desire more than anything? Love, relationship, unity, peace, where you know you're not being lied about, where you know you're not going to be cheated, where you know you're not going to experience death in all its forms. And God is wrestling with this before time and saying, this is how we're going to relate to one another. This is what we're going to do in this story in order to ultimately bring all of humanity into it with us. In other words, God's story is going to become our story. And it's in the uniting of those stories that the beauty comes out. And so he starts with Adam and Eve. He starts then, and, and, and right out of the gate, sure enough, what does humanity do? Well, first of all, they're being tempted because there's a prior creation. You got to get this. This is, this is like sci-fi type stuff. There's a prior creation to humanity, the angelic beings. And some of them are beginning to rebel against God. Some of them are beginning to question God's wisdom, his ability to rightly rule the universe. And so they find a perfect opportunity. The ones that are questioning and accusing God, here's our opportunity to get God and to show that he is not fit to rule. His wisdom is not enough because he said he's going to give it to these dirty little earth creatures that are so beneath me, Satan says. They're so beneath me. And so I'm going to come down and I'm going to twist them and I'm going to turn them against God. And when they do, then I can point at God and say, you see, you're a fool. You devoted yourself. You made this creation and then you gave it to them to rule. Look at how foolish you are. Look at the killing. Look at the violence in all the earth. That's your fault, God. You see, there's a grand drama going on. And the scriptures reveal all this amazingly. All throughout time, different authors, different prophets, at different times, kept getting little tidbits. And they couldn't quite put the story together yet until Jesus. And so this whole thing's going on. He makes this promise with Abraham. Uh, and he makes a covenant with him. He's saying, listen, humanity's gone all awry. But I'm going to choose you. And I'm going to start with you and make a promise to you that through you, the blessings of this life that I have between me and the Son and the Spirit, I'm going to bring it back to humanity through you. I'm going to bless you and your family with it. And then through you, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth. I'm going to bring everyone back into it. But even Abraham and his own family begin to turn or disbelieve God from time to time. All through his children, there's always the covenant jeopardy where the, the story's going sideways again. And all of a sudden, the enemy gets to point back at God again. He gets to point and accuse humanity, and then he gets to point and accuse God. And it seems like there's no way that God's going to be able to pull it off. There's no way he can get this thing turned around. No matter what God does, no matter what miracles he brings, it seems humanity is bent on destroying itself. We literally today invent things that will kill us. And it seems that we do that relationally. We do that in every way possible. And God's going, how can I turn it all around? Ultimately, God's people, the promise to God's people, 
They, the, the promises are in Israel, and ultimately it gets narrowed down to the son of David. Surely the, the David king and his son, surely God's promises and his rule to the earth that would rejuvenate and change everything would happen through them. But they too prove to constantly turn against God. And then finally God says, enough is enough. I can't take it no more. I'm going to send the whole nation, the whole nation that I love and that I've made a covenant with, I'm going to send them into exile. And in exile, the prophets describe that life as death. They're now dead in their sins and in their trespasses. The promises of covenant life have now been broken and permanently broken. And it seems that God is a fool and humanity has ruined itself. This is the story God presents to us. Then finally comes the gospel. What is the gospel? You see, we've reduced it down to just being about us as individuals and not about this cosmic story that God laid out from before time and began to plant seeds all through time until the appointed time in which he would bring his son Jesus into the earth and show the world and show the demonic forces and show the angelic forces his wisdom and his right to rule. You see, the gospel story is not any old story. It's a royal story about how Jesus becomes the saving king for all of creation. That is the good news. Because unless something comes into the picture to change it all, then the good news cannot be the good news. So let's start. Number one. Jesus' incarnation. This is good news. A king has arrived, Luke says. The rule of God has now come into being, into a human being, in order to turn humanity all back to God. How's he going to do that? Is he going to bring in the tanks? Is he going to bring in the warring angels and force everybody to bow to God? No. That's not how God operates. That's how we think. That's how nations fight nations in our country. That's how politicians fight it. That's how businesses fight it. It's always fight fire with fire. But God's not like that. You see, the gospel reveals the very nature and the very heart of God in how he works, in how he lives. And it's good news because of not only what he's going to do and how he does it, but then the invitation to you to come into that kind of thinking to come into that way of living and to come into his very life. The incarnation, the son before time. I tell you what, Father, one day, if you'll give me a body, I'll become a living sacrifice. I'll give you what you ultimately deserve and what you want, which is total devotion of humanity to you. That's why Jesus said, I'll take on the body. Give me a body and I'll lay it at your feet. Do, do you realize the nature and the kind of God that we have, that we worship, that says that kind of a thing? I'm willing to humble myself and take on this crude body and be willing to be hated, cheated, lied to, ultimately my friends to deny me and ultimately for all the powers that be to crucify me. I'm willing to do it. Jesus said one day when he was very hungry, none of the apostles and Jesus had eaten. And they were questioning and wondering, my man, hasn't he eaten yet? 
And he looks at them and he says, listen, I have food that you know not of. I'm like, what, what did he eat? He said, the, the will of the Father is my food. The will of the Father is my food. That's what we're all called to. That's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of image you were made into. That your body would become a living sacrifice unto him. And by surrendering your bodies, we would worship him in spirit and truth. And by worshiping him in spirit and truth, we would reflect the very image of God and then therefore enter into the very life of God. I hope this is connecting some dots for some of you from the, 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 the plan beforehand and then the Old Testament story and it all culminating in the gospel story that God himself, the, the second person of the Trinity, the Son, takes on flesh. And why does he take on flesh? He knows he's got to take, take humanity in a 180. And so when he comes on that wonderful day and John the Baptist sees him coming, What does he declare? God has spoken to him. God has begun. He's been searching the scriptures and he's beginning to put the pieces together so that he would be greater than all the other prophets, Jesus said. Because he would look at Jesus and go, I know who you are. You're the Lamb of God. The, the lamb that was slain at Passover in Egypt and its blood was spilled and covered the doors of the, of the people and the death angel passed over and they were able to come out of that and be brought into life under the rule of God. John looks at Jesus and says, there he is. There's the lamb of God who's going to give perfect obedience to the father. He's going to lay his life down to the father and for you. Do you understand all the pain that it takes, all the suffering he took on, all the lying, all the cheating, all the abuse, ultimately the crucifixion, ultimately the death, all for you. Even though he knew he could not trust any of you. Jesus himself said, I entrust myself to no man, but only to the Father. Because he knows every one of you would turn yourselves against him. Me, you, all of humanity. We've done it over and over and again. Husbands do it to wives. Wives do it to husbands. Children, daughters to their mothers, sons to their fathers, and vice versa. We constantly turn on each other, don't we? We are a broken people. I often say that I'm twice the man I feel like I used to be because of Christ, but I'm still yet half the man I want to be. The, the man that I want to be that is like Christ, I still have so long to go, but yet I have come so far. You see, when we lay down our lives, we become like him. We enter into that life, and when we grow in love for one another. So Jesus takes on the flesh, and what does he begin to proclaim? The kingdom of God. This is the good news. What is the kingdom of God good news that he's declaring? Listen, all the promises of God, all the plans of God, are now coming to fruition. The reign and the rule and the life of God is now coming, and it's coming through me. Jesus didn't say, I'm showing you the way to life. He declared, I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. 
He who believes in me, though he are dead, yet shall he live. That's audacious kind of statements. Nobody in the world has ever made those kinds of statements and ever been taken seriously or credible. To say not, hey, I know the way to life. I know the way to God. No, I am the life. I am the resurrection. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Do you realize how audacious these kind of statements are? It, it divides humanity on that basis. You can't say Jesus is a good guy. Good guys don't say that. You can't say Jesus is a prophet. Prophets don't say that. Unless God is in that body, it's a lie. It's a deception. But if God is in that body, then that body is going to lead us to life. And so he proclaims, and he pronounces healing, and he raises the dead, and he speaks forth of his coming suffering. He speaks forth of how he's going to be betrayed even by his closest friends. He knew it from the very beginning. The hour has come. Satan now enters Peter, and he knows it. He saw it from the beginning. And he's like, let it be. Let it come. Let all of hell's hordes do their worst. Let all of humanity's rulers do their worst. Come and get me. He did not run. They did not take him. He laid down his life as an offering. Not my will in the garden, did he say but your will be done, Father. This is the good news. It reveals the nature, the character of our God. He's not just all-powerful. He's just not almighty. He's not far away. No, he came into our midst and he was willing to suffer as humanity suffers. And it says in Hebrews that he learned through this suffering what it would take to give full obedience to God. None of you know that. I don't know that. What would it take for you to give total obedience to the Father? The total surrender of your will. What kind of willpower? What kind of force? What kind of uh, devotion to the Father would you have to have to never once turn from the will of the Father? We can't simply even imagine that. We so quickly and easily turn on one another and turn on God that we don't know what it is to really bear the weight of sin and temptation. But he says, I've learned it. I took sin and temptation to its ultimate limit and I broke it. It didn't break me, I broke it. And so he went to the cross. And it says back in the prophets, once again, the story told from the beginning of time, and then he dropped a little note to one of the prophets that said, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but it says, as my enemies are coming at me, I always see God at my right hand. Psalms 22, though it looks like God is turning his back on me, I remember the conversations we had. I remember the plan that we said we were going to do. And though it looks like I'm being, uh, I, I'm, I'm being killed and God's turning his back on me and I am accursed, I now look up and I see the Father weeping 
and standing at my right hand. The right hand, uh, as the prophet spoke that, the right hand in the ancient days was the protector. You see, you had, a she- you had a sword in your right and a shield in your left. You could protect yourself on the left, but if arrows and things were shot at you from the right, you could not protect your right side. And so those that you put on your right hand were meant to be your protectors, both in war, but also in the courtroom. And so as Jesus is being crucified and and ridiculed, and it seems that God is turning his back on him, Jesus is saying, I know better. The Father, I see him, and he's at my right hand. He's the one defending me. And he's going to be the one to not let this body see decay. This is the gospel story. This is the story that God had planned way back before time. And that he began to reveal in little bits and little pieces, but it was still hidden. But the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel is now being played out to where the very words and conversations spoken of before time are now being played out for all the world to see. What kind of wisdom does it take to pull that off? To to bring it all together in such a way to bring it all on him so that he could make atonement for humanity. He could make atonement and cover over the violence and over the abuses and over the rapes and over the wars and over the oppressions of humanity, both to God and to each other. Then comes the resurrection. He's buried. It's over. The enemy finally gets to gloat. We got him. We finally got him. The one sent to save, we got him. And because we got him, we now can give the final closing accusation against God the Father himself. But then comes the rumblings. Then comes the thunder and the lightning. And the literally power of God, of the Holy Spirit himself. It's like the Holy Spirit is a part of this plan all throughout. And now he gets poured out on Jesus. And it says that through the power of the Holy Spirit, he transforms and resurrects Jesus' body, creating new creation. What is new creation? What is resurrection? It's not just Jesus coming back to life. It's literally changing, I believe, the molecular structure of his body, right? Your bodies are all made up of atoms held together by bonds. And when those bonds are broken, it's called either fission or fusion. Either brought together, it's fusion, split apart, it's fission. Both of which, it says that when that happens, that's what they create nuclear bombs out of. Fission is when they split the atoms and create a chain reaction and you get the nuclear explosion. They haven't figured out the fusion part yet. The only place we know that that happens is in the sun, where matter is constantly being melted together and bonded together in order to give off its light and power and life. The resurrection is the literal fusion of the Holy Spirit bonding to every fiber of Jesus' body, thus giving him what the Bible calls, or what Paul calls, a spiritual body. That kind of body no longer can decay. It cannot get sick. It does not die. It cannot be deceived. 
It cannot be thwarted in any way. It is indestructible. It is in, uh, it cannot be persuaded to turn from God. The body is literally the Holy Spirit body. It's the very life of God, and He's being resurrected into that life. Humanity recreated to never fall again. That's what the resurrection is new creation. All had seemed lost. God had seemed to be made a fool. But what the enemy and humanity never, ever, ever dreamed of, that God would want to tell the story like this. To tell the story of how he would die. How he would become a man. Satan would have, would have laughed at the idea of God saying, hey, why don't you become one of them? He'd be like, no way. You're crazy. But God himself is willing to humble himself. You see, the all-creative, all-powerful God is more humble than you can imagine. He's more delicate than you can ever imagine. But don't get it twisted. He's also powerful enough and creative enough to literally recreate humanity in such a shape and in such a form that they would never turn from God again. Their will and His will would be literally fused together by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the resurrection. It's beyond your imagination. It's perfect peace. It's perfect love. It's all of the goodness of God, the life of God, being fused together literally in His body. That's why He raised, and that's why the spillover, it says that many people else came out of their grave. They weren't resurrected, but the life was being displayed so powerfully that many other people came out of their graves, walked into the city and going, what in the world just happened? I had just gone into the grave and darkness covered me over and the next thing I knew, everything erupted in creation and I came back to life. You see, the story that God is telling is beyond any story that we could really ever imagine. It's bigger and better than you can imagine. It's bigger and better than what we've been told. It's bigger and better than what we've told people out there. You see, the story of the gospel has been hijacked into a simple, how do you get saved? Into a simple, how do I get forgiven? Versus this cosmic story that is compelling both to hear it and to see it and to imagine it and to realize that God pulled it off, but then to realize this now gives identity to me. This now gives purpose to me. I get to now participate in the power of the resurrection with the hope and the promise that when he returns, I'll experience what he experienced. I'll become like him. Jesus became like you so that you could become like him. Not that you would become God, but that you would become fused together within the family of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Do you understand what kind of power and love and experience it will be to be united with Him in that kind of way? It is beyond imagination. It is what we would be willing to live or die for. This is why we cannot be lukewarm. This is why we can't sit around as if it's all been taken care of and because I'm forgiven or I'm saved or I'm this or I'm that. I'm comfortable, I'm this, I'm that. No, there's too much at stake. The story is too big, it's too beautiful. 
enter into the story because he's calling every one of you. Lay down your weapons, lay down your rebellious ways, and come. Deny yourselves, pick up your cross, and come follow me, and I'll show you the way to life. I'll show you how to love. I'll show you how to serve. I'll show you how to look hatred in the eyeballs only to give them a hug, only to show them grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness. There should be no bitterness. There should be no unforgiveness in this church. He laid it all down for you. Now he calls you to lay it all down for one another. I have been given life and that life I will give you. I didn't come just to give you life. I came to give you life and life more abundantly. And that's what's on offer in this story. It goes way beyond. In other words, you now get to do what he did. And we're going to talk about this in the couple weeks ahead. But the, the, the privilege and the honor. And so Jesus, okay, he resurrects. He's ascending. And he sits down at the right hand of the Father. Daniel 7. Go read it. Revelation 4, go read it. Acts 1, go read it. It tells the story of Jesus coming back and saying, okay, guys, let's go over this again. They're bewildered. They're like, okay, he's back. All right, uh, we, we lost it all. We denied him. We were ready to go back fishing, but, but he's back. Uh, the whole kingdom stuff, all the healing stuff, the crucifixion thing, they still can't put it together. And for 40 days, he goes over the scriptures. Luke 24. He says, and he opens their minds so that they can see the hidden story. And he says, it all speaks of me. You thought it was about a temple structure, but no, that temple spoke of me. You thought it was about a covenant between God the Father and Abraham, but no, it's about the new covenant that I give in my body and in my blood. You thought it was about the priesthood and their garments, but no, I am the high priest of all high priests. And I'm asking you and inviting you into that priesthood. All of that story is now exploding with life because it all reveals who Jesus is. What he's about and what he's doing and what he's inviting you into. So when he sits down at the right hand of the Father, he now has power and authority over heaven and earth. The enemy cannot accuse no more. He can't look in God and go, you fool. Because now he has to look at the man, Jesus, and go, oh my gosh, we're going to have to fall to our knees and worship him too. You see, the ultimate end, I'm going to talk about next week. When Jesus returns, it's bigger and better than you've ever heard or imagined before. It's how the end game becomes the end game. How will God get every person and all the angelic beings to willingly worship him? How will he do that without taking away their will? That's the end game. As, as Paul says in Romans, that all the nations would obey him. That every tongue, in Philippians, every tongue would confess and every knee would bow and declare Jesus Christ is truly the Lord over all humanity. 
He alone is worthy to rule. He alone must be worshipped. He alone must be obeyed. And everybody will agree. There will be no more arguments. There will be no more deceptions. There will be no more lies because God will have completed his plan in such a way to bring such light that no one will argue with it anymore. How does that happen? Next week, we're going to talk about that. That's the final act of the seven-act play of God that we call the gospel. It ends today with the resurrection and the ascension. But he sends the Holy Spirit. Why does he send the Holy Spirit? I'm going to end on this. Because those who believe, and we're going to talk more about that next week, those who believe, he says he's going to send the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father. The same Holy Spirit that transformed and resurrected his body. That Holy Spirit is going to be in you. The same Holy Spirit that he laid his hands on the sick and they recovered is the same Holy Spirit in you. The same Holy Spirit that empowered him to proclaim the gospel, he is going to put in you. You see this relationship. God, Jesus saying, I am now seated at the right hand of God and I'm going to rule over the earth now. How's he going to rule? With a, with a fist? No. Through the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's going to come and he's going to change your heart. And it's going to allow you to see the gospel in such beauty that it's going to cause you to be like a lion that's tamed. All of a sudden, the beauty of the story, the beauty of Jesus, his humility, his sacrifice, his love, his forgiveness to you, it melts your heart to where you go, Father, it's all yours. Whatever you want to do with this body, it's all yours. Where do you want to take it? What do you want to do with it? How do you want me to surrender it? I surrender all my will to you. That's what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in each and every one of you in order to bring you into the life of the Son himself. What a beautiful story. What a powerful story. Beyond imagination, what that really contains. It will take you years to plumb the depths of what I've just described to you. It's one thing to hear it. Could you get up here and explain it? And then, are you shaping your whole life according to that pattern? According to that path? According to that story of the gospel? So that Jesus, who was exalted, humbled himself, became a man, became a servant to humanity, and died for humanity. And then the Father says, since you're willing to do that, I'll now exalt you and set you at my right hand. And then when Jesus comes, Back to them. And he speaks to John. He says, listen, of those of you who will follow me in this, and you overcome the desire to want to live for yourselves, I'll give you the right to sit with me at the right hand of the Father. Revelation 3 at the end. Look it up. The promise to you is that if you'll lay down your bodies, you'll lay down your wills, and you'll give your absolute allegiance to King Jesus, he'll give you the right to sit down at the right hand and to be one who would defend God. Think about it. How are you going to defend God? By saying it's all because of grace. It's all because of him. It's all because of mercy. It's all because he laid his life down for me. I'm here defending the Father against anyone and everyone who would ever want to accuse the Father again and saying, it's all because of him. 
The story's not about me. I just get the benefits of getting to come inside of it. The story is about Jesus. The story, the good news, the gospel is about him and who he is and what he did and what he accomplished and how he's inviting all of us into that life. The gospel is bigger and better than you ever thought before. I encourage you, uh, this last slide, I've given you some scriptures to look up. I'm asking you this year, begin to read through the gospels again. Ask yourselves these questions. If this is true, what kind of God do I serve? If this story is true, what does that tell me about the nature of Jesus? What does that tell me about the nature of humanity? What does that say about me? Who I am and what my identity is and how I am to live and what choices I am to make and how I worship and how I live and how I love and how I forgive. How does this short story shape me? Devote yourselves to understanding the gospel so that then you can get to the place where you can proclaim the story, hopefully in a compelling way, in a way that people's eyes would open up and go, you know, I never heard it told like that. So much beauty, so much power, so much depth that it speaks to every problem in the world. It speaks to every issue in the world. It speaks to every hurt and every pain that you have. This story makes sense of it all. You see, without the gospel understanding, you have no foundation to build upon. Paul himself said it. He says, I've laid a foundation to the Corinthian church. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of you have got to understand it. You've got to proclaim it. You've got to live it. And then be careful how you build upon it. Because each of you will be judged for every word, thought, and deed as to how you built. How are you going to build upon the story? How are you going to enter in and become a part of what God is continuing to tell in the world today? This is the good news of the gospel, of who our God is, what he has accomplished, what he has done, and starting next week, what he will ultimately do to bring it to culmination in the return of Christ so, Father, the wisdom that you put on display to be able to speak it forth thousands of years ahead of time and then to be able to shape history, to be able to take humanity in its own rebellion and still use humanity to bring your plan to fulfillment, God, that's impossible. And it seemed as if it were truly going to fail at the crucifixion. But in the resurrection, God, new life came forth. And that is our hope. That is our joy. That is now what captivates our lives and our minds and our bodies to say, Lord, with what you did with Jesus, take my body and do the same thing. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill me with the will of the Father. Come and fill me with the love of the Son so that I might know this eternal type of life, so that I might know you in spirit and in truth. And so, Lord Jesus, we ask you, do this great work in us. Do it in our church, God, so that we would then become a light. We would become a city that's set on a hill that the world around looks at and says, what kind of life is this? 
and we could then share the story, the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, you've captivated my heart, and I ask you, help me to give you full devotion. In spirit and in truth, God, help us to know who you truly are. You're no, there's nothing more beautiful. There's nothing more powerful. There's nothing more compelling than truly who you are and what you've done. And so, Lord, we just want to worship you now. We want to declare who Jesus really is. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And he will rule and reign, and there will be no end. In Jesus' name we declare it. Amen.